This presentation of In Their Own Words is brought to you by The Honor Project and is dedicated to the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces. This is the tale of two American pilots of the Second World War, one a fighter ace in Burma and the other a bomber pilot in Europe. Both men were engaging characters with very unique wartime experiences. In the late spring and summer of 1941, months before the Pearl Harbor attack would bring the United States into the war, General Claire Chenault began organizing a team of American pilots to fly for China. The Chinese needed pilots and planes in their fight against the Japanese. Chenault had the blessing of President Franklin Roosevelt to hire Army, Navy, and Marine Corps aviators to fly the Curtis Wright P-40 Warhawk. This collection of pilots, mechanics, and support personnel was called the American Volunteer Group, or AVG, but they're better remembered as the Flying Tigers. 23-year-old R.T. Smith was one of those swashbuckling pilots who accepted Chenault's offer to get into the war as fast as he could. When I talked to Smith a number of years ago, you could still feel his fondness for those days. He was a great pilot and just as good a storyteller. Well, let's start with how you got into uh, the AVG. How did that come about? Well, I was in the uh, Army Air Corps at the time. I had been commissioned a second lieutenant after going through the Army Air Corps flying training program. And uh, uh, I was commissioned second lieutenant and they sent me back to Randolph Field, which was the training base uh, for the basic phase of flying training in the Air Corps. And I had been back there as an instructor for a year when uh, in June of 1941, I happened to see a little article in Time Magazine that uh, told of of uh, a bunch of uh, Army and Navy and Marine Corps pilots who were being allowed to resign their commissions in order to go to, to China and fight the Japanese uh, on behalf of the, of the Chinese. And I thought that sounded like a lot more fun than being an instructor. And uh, so I uh, dug around a little bit and found out who to contact in Washington where they were sort of setting this up. And uh, eventually, a week or so later, a man came down and he recruited uh, four or five different people from, from the San Antonio area where I was. And I was one of them and uh, signed up to go into this thing that was being called the American Volunteer Group. And it was strictly a case of, uh, of uh, having to go over as civilian pilots because this was, of course, uh, uh, long before Pearl Harbor and the United States was not at war with uh, anybody. But um, we had to resign our commissions in order to be civilians to go over. But all of us came from the military. And uh, we went over um, uh, on regular uh, U.S. passports that said nothing about our military background or anything. But they wound up uh, recruiting 100 pilots from the various branches of the service and uh, about 175 ground crew people to uh, maintain the airplanes that we were going to fly. And it turned out that uh, the Chinese were being allowed to buy 100 P-40 airplanes. And uh, those are the ones that, uh, that we ultimately flew. The 
way we got there was uh, there were three or four different contingents that went over on different boats uh, that left from San Francisco. And uh, we all traveled over uh, on, on Java Pacific lines, which uh, operated some combination freighter passenger uh, boats. And uh, we just went across the Pacific on that, stopped in, in uh, Hawaii and uh, the Philippines and Singapore. And finally, uh, our destination then uh, was Rangoon, Burma. Of course, uh, Burma in those days uh, was still a, a colony of the British. And the RAF had a small station uh, located there in Rangoon, and they had an outlying field uh, up north of Rangoon, about 170 miles, that they were not using. So they were uh, very kind enough to give um, the Chinese government and uh, our group uh, the opportunity to, to get organized at that little airfield uh, north of Rangoon until we were ready to go into combat in China. So this was in the fall of 1941. And uh, we trained and uh, everybody got together eventually and we did some flying and training. Our, our airplanes had been shipped over to Rangoon in crates and they were assembled there and then test hopped and um, flown up to our little base there. And uh, actually we were just about ready to move up to China to the base in Kunming, China where we were going to be operating when uh, Pearl Harbor was attacked. So we were just about ready to go to China and get to work uh, at that time. And as it happened then, uh, after Pearl Harbor, uh, it was decided that one of the three squadrons that we had, uh, the third squadron in this case, which I was in, would be sent down to Rangoon to help protect Rangoon, along with the, uh, they had a single squadron of, of Brewster Buffalo fighters down in Rangoon that the RAF had. And our, uh, the Rangoon being the shipping port and the major uh, city in Burma, it was decided that uh, we better go down and try to help them a little bit. The other two squadrons then flew up to China. And um, it was just uh, a couple of weeks after Pearl Harbor that uh, the Japanese came over Rangoon in force. And that was uh, when I first got into action. In our training in Tongu, uh, our, our uh, commanding officer, uh, General Chenault, actually we called him Colonel, he was uh, an honorary Colonel and he was the advisor to the Chinese Air Force. And uh, uh, he was an American pilot who had uh, retired from the service and gone over to China. But Chenault had been in China quite some time before the AVG was formed. And in, in our training in Tongu, uh, he stressed the fact that the Japanese planes were much more maneuverable than the P-40 and that they could outclimb us and outturn us. So we had to uh, use different tactics and uh, the idea was that uh, we had a little bit better top speed, a little more top speed than the Japanese planes and um, we had a little better firepower. Our airplanes were uh, protected better than the Japanese uh, fighters. We had armor plate and they didn't and we had self-sealing fuel tanks and they didn't. So uh, we had some advantages and some disadvantages and uh, the whole idea was when we tangled with Japanese fighters, we were to try to get a shot at them and, uh, and then dive away before they could turn and, and get on our tail. And then come back and get some altitude and come back and uh, have another crack at them. Uh, of course, attacking their bombers was a different thing because the bombers didn't maneuver, they stayed in formation all the time. and. Um, the idea there was to get in behind them and, uh, and just shoot the hell out of them if you could. 
Of course, they, they were always flying in a close formation and there were always lots of them. And they had gunners in those bombers, of course, all shooting back at you. So it made a kind of an interesting situation. But uh, uh, basically, uh, the, the strange thing about uh, the AVG gang was that uh, very few of us had ever flown uh, uh, fighters or P-40s uh, in the States before we got over to Burma. And very few had had any uh, aerial gunnery training. And uh, this meant that uh, the first aerial targets that we were shooting at were Japanese airplanes, not, not a training towed sleeve or anything like that, which uh, was the normal thing. So this was sort of the ultimate in on-the-job training. Uh, once we got into uh, combat, well, we were shooting at the real thing. And uh, on the first go-around, the, uh, the first raid that came over Rangoon was on the 23rd of December. And we had 14 P-40s that we got up against uh, the Japanese. And they came over with, uh, I think it was 54 twin-engine bombers in two different big waves and about 30 single-engine fighters uh, behind them. And we tore into them, and they tore into us, and, uh, and uh, it, it got to be quite a hairy battle. Uh, we wound up on that particular occasion, as I recall, shooting down about nine or ten Japanese planes and they shot down uh, three of ours, and two of our pilots were killed, and the other guy was, was able to bail out, and he got down okay. And that was, that was the first raid. And then they came back two days later on Christmas Day with even more bombers. This time they had about 70 twin-engine bombers and about 40 fighters. And on that occasion, we were only able to get up about, uh, I think it was 13 P-40s. And that day we really lit into them. By that time we felt a little more confident in our own ability and in the, uh, the capabilities of, uh, of the P-40. And we'd uh, had one shot at them before. And on the, uh, 23rd, on the 25th, rather, the uh, Christmas Day raid, we wound up shooting down about 20 Japanese bombers and fighters combined. And on that one we lost uh, only two airplanes and both pilots managed to uh, survive. They uh, had to belly land in the rice paddies. But uh, they came out of it all right. Nice Christmas present. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's the way it went over there. The, uh, the Japanese uh, always outnumbered us. And, uh, and if, we, if we hadn't had the good airplane that we did in the P-40 and, uh, and the training and the tactics that we'd had from Chenault, uh, we wouldn't have done near as well as we did, I guess. R.T. Smith and his fellow aviators in the Flying Tigers were battle-testing the new Curtis P-40s. What they learned in their life-and-death dogfights made its way back to the engineers at the Curtis Aircraft Company, who did what they could to make the P-40 even more lethal. Well, the model that we had to start with, we, we had the B or C model, they had two 30 caliber machine guns in each wing and two 50 caliber machine guns in the nose firing through the prop. And that was pretty good uh, armament. But uh, later on in the uh, spring of 42, uh, we were able to get some later model P-40s that had uh, three 50 caliber guns in each wing. And that was much better, of course. Well, what, what runs through your mind when I first see these, these Japanese Zeros or Zeeks or whatever they were coming at you? I guess the obvious thing is, first of all, you're scared. <laughs> I think most guys admit that, the, that they, they have some butterflies, all right. 
there, there's a tremendous rush of adrenaline. I guess that also is common. But uh, you're up there to do a job, and, uh, and you know uh, it's either going to be you or them. And uh, you try to get in the first shot if you can, and if not, you try to get away. And uh, it's uh, and you're so busy. The the flying part of it is uh, your hands are so busy, your feet are busy, and uh, and you keep having to look around all the time to make sure somebody isn't sneaking up behind to shoot you down. And uh, uh, it's just a very busy situation. It's uh, one of those things that when you first spot them, you feel like, oh boy, what am I doing up here? But uh, uh, after you get into it, why well, it's, it's like anything else. You start working at it, and uh, and things usually go pretty well. Now the AVG had a phenomenal victory ratio in terms of uh, number of enemy planes shot down to yeah. the number of uh, P40s. Mm -hmm. What was that ratio, and what do you uh, attribute that to? Well, uh, in the first place, that ratio is kind of misleading. I think uh, I've seen a lot of things where it said we only lost four pilots. Uh, we shot down nearly 300 Japanese planes, uh, uh, not, not just in the air but on the ground. Destroyed a lot of them on the ground too in strafing. But um, it's true that only four of our pilots were shot down and killed in air-to-air -air combat. But uh, we lost uh, half a dozen in strafing raids where they were shot down by ground fire and either crashed or, or bailed out and were captured. And we lost a lot of them in, in training accidents even before we got into combat. But uh, actually, we, uh, we lost, I think it was 22 pilots that were killed uh, in one way or another. Uh, and most of those, as I say, were not due to uh, enemy air-to-air uh, -air fighting. Now, you ask me, uh, you ask uh, to what do I attribute that? Uh, number one, I think, uh, generally speaking, I think our pilots were better than, than they were. Number two, uh, the P-40 could take a lot more punishment than the uh, Japanese airplanes. As I mentioned earlier, they had uh, armor plate to protect the pilot and uh, self-sealing gas tanks, and uh, the Japanese didn't. So if you got a good burst of fire into one of the Japanese fighters, you could pretty well figure that he's going to uh, catch fire. And that didn't apply to us. And uh, we had a number of guys that were shot down and bailed out successfully uh, after, being, after the airplane was crippled. But um, uh, I think a combination of our airplanes and our tactics uh, and the fact that I believe our pilots were better than they were. The uh, Chinese government uh, was paying bonuses, or what was that arrangement? That it was well, rather lucrative to be a part of the AVG? We were told when we signed up to go into the AVG um, that uh, in addition to the regular salary that they agreed to pay us, which in most cases was $600 a month, uh, that we would get a bonus of $500 for every Japanese plane that was shot down. Now, that was not in our contract, uh, in our written contract, but we were told that that would happen. And as it turned out, that did happen. Uh, they did uh, pay the, the bonus of $500 for each Japanese that was confirmed uh, shot down. And I, I got mine in two different checks, one of them for $2,500 and the other one for 2000 so for nine airplanes. And uh, uh, so I was pretty rich when I got home. <laughs> what, what was normal pay for uh, an aviator? Well, as a second lieutenant in the Air Corps, for instance, I think my pay was about $235 a month. And I went from that to 600 a month. 
And a lot of people say, well, no wonder you went over that with so much money. Well, you don't find too many guys that are going to go over that $600 a month uh, just for the money if they figure they got a pretty good chance of getting shot out and killed. So that wasn't the reason I don't think that most of us went. Uh, it wasn't the money it, uh, or the bonus thing, which we didn't figure would ever be paid uh, when we went over. We thought that was just a bunch of talk. But uh, I think almost all of us went just because we were full of uh, you-know-what uh, at that young and crazy age and uh, looking for adventure and a uh, chance to see the, the world, the Far East. And I, I know most of us had read a lot of adventure stories by the guys uh, about that part of the world. And uh, so I think most of us went strictly for the adventure end of it. There was a one, one other thing I should add. I think almost all of us were aware of the fact that the Japanese had attacked China for, and been giving them hell for three or four years at that point. And the Chinese had practically no air force, no air defense. And the, uh, the Japanese were running all over China indiscriminately bombing and killing people by the thousands. So we thought that this was a worthy cause. I'm, I'm sure that all of us, uh, if we'd had the same opportunity to go and fight for the Japanese under the same conditions against the Chinese, I don't think any of us would have done that. What do you believe it takes to be a successful fighter pilot? Well, first you got to be crazy, and uh, after that, uh, you got to be a pretty good pilot. Uh, there are a lot of guys that that had to fly bombers that uh, that wish they could fly fighters, and would have made excellent fighter pilots. And I know of a few fighter pilots that should have been flying bombers because they fly straight and level all the time. Uh, I can't answer your question any better, I guess, than to say that first of all. You've got to, to have the spirit of adventure and the, and the, and the idea that you can, you can beat the next guy, you know. How do you think fighter pilots from your era compare to pilots of today? Well, I think the, uh, the guys that were fighter pilots in my day, the good ones at least, could have, if they'd been born in this day and age, uh, would have been equally as good as anybody that's uh, flying them now. But, of course, the technology has changed so much. Uh, they've become so much more sophisticated in, uh, in every way. Uh, and I, can, I, I envy these guys uh, having the chance to fly some of these birds today. But uh, I know that it's keeping them awful busy. They have to be very, very sharp. Everything has changed a great deal. And, of course, the speeds have gone up so, so high. Uh, uh, hell, in, in the day when I was flying fighters, uh, 350, 400 miles an hour, that was going pretty fast. And today, I go, you know, Mach 2 or 3 or whatever, and, uh, and there isn't much time to do anything uh, at those speeds. But on the other hand, they, they can detect the enemy several miles away where we couldn't, and their, their uh, weapons uh, can reach out a lot further than ours get, could. All of our machine gun firing was done usually at no more than 350 or so yards on into zero yards. And uh, uh, today, uh, they're not relying so much on, uh, on the guns as they are on the missiles. Of your nine confirmed victories, yeah. which one sticks in your mind as probably the most challenging? Well, there were a couple of them uh, that, that stick out in my mind. Uh, 
Well, one was the very first uh, victory I had, and that was a twin-engine bomber over Rangoon on the 23rd of uh, December. And in that case, I was uh, right behind this twin-engine bomber and closing in from dead astern and opened up with all my guns and uh, at about two, 200 yards or so and close to within maybe 50 yards or less. Uh, and I'm still firing, and at this point, the, uh, the bomber just plain blew up right in my face. And uh, I had just started to pull up to, to get up over this guy when, uh, when he just blew up in a big ball of fire. And it, uh, it threw my airplane up like a leaf uh, and out of control for a moment uh, there. And, uh, but I can remember um, the, uh, the feeling of uh, exaltation of uh, having known that uh, no matter what happened from that point on, I had knocked down at least one. And uh, so that was, a, that was a real big moment. And the other one was uh, a head-on pass at a Japanese fighter. And in this case, the two of us were heading right at each other. We both opened up at about 400 yards apart. And I, I don't recall that either of us took any evasive action. Why we didn't hit head-on, I don't know. But uh, we, were, we were both firing all the way in. And uh, somehow we, we did pass. He passed directly underneath me, and I, I bet our prop tips didn't clear by more than a foot. And uh, I went into a hard turn to the left, to, figuring I hadn't got him. And uh, But by the time I turned around far enough, I could see by that time he had caught fire and, and was going down toward the uh, ocean. Did you ever have to bail out? Were you ever in that no. situation? No. Yeah. Well, yeah, I got shot up a few times when I thought maybe I might have to get out of it. but. Uh, uh, fortunately, my engine kept running uh, well enough to to keep it going. Now, what happened uh, when the uh, United States entered the war? What happened with the AVG? Well, we kept operating as a separate entity, uh, just as we had been designed to do after the uh, U.S. got into the war. But um, it was decided fairly early after uh, the first of, uh, of the year of 1942 that uh, this wouldn't work for too long a time. Uh, having a bunch of civilian pilots, even though we were ex-military, uh, when, uh, when the Air Corps started bringing people in, and they knew that they would have to uh, bring a lot of people in, it was decided that at, uh, at that time that our group would have to be disbanded. And uh, they settled on the date of the 4th of July of 1942 as the date that we would be officially disbanded, at which point the Air Corps would have a few P-40s of their own up there. They would take over our old airplanes and uh, have more people and, and all that coming in. And uh, the Air Corps recommissioned uh, Chennault as Brigadier General while we were still in the AVG. And uh, then when, when the AVG was disbanded and the Air Corps took over, he took over as commander of the 23rd Fighter Group uh, of something they called at that time the China Air Task Force. And then about uh, oh, eight or nine months later, the Air Task Force became part of the 14th Air Force and Chenault was promoted to uh, Major General and he was in command then of the 14th Air Force also. Now, uh, we were offered commissions uh, to stay over if we, if we wanted to, or in fact, they wanted us to all to stay on. But they, didn't, uh, they wouldn't agree to giving, giving us any leave or any time off or anything. And we didn't have to stay, of course. 
and uh, we had fulfilled our contracts and all. So most of us decided we'd get back to the States, play around a little bit, and then go back into the service that we'd been in before we left. And uh, that's what I did, and that's what most of us did. Uh, there were, I think, five of the pilots uh, did accept commissions and stayed on over there after the 4th of July, and uh, 15 or 20 of our ground crew guys uh, took ratings over there and were sworn into the Air Corps. And uh, most of us, I say, came home, and uh, I went back into the Air Corps. I was recommissioned in the Air Corps, and then later in late 43 and early 44, uh, I went back as a major in the Air Corps, uh, back to India and Burma on a second combat tour. So how did the famous Flying Tigers get that nickname? And is that fierce-looking nose art the gaping maw of a tiger or a shark? The teeth. Now, I've heard that those aren't tiger teeth, well, they're it, shark's teeth. They are shark's teeth, and they had nothing to do with the name Flying Tigers. I get asked that quite often, uh, how we got the name. Uh, first of all, before we were called the Flying Tigers, uh, one of our guys, uh, at, while we were training at this little uh, base in, in uh, north of, uh, of Rangoon, one of our guys saw a picture in a uh, British newspaper that showed a picture of a P-40 uh, in the uh, desert in Africa that had a shark's mouth painted on it. And he thought that looked pretty good, and so he went out and onto his airplane, and we each had our own individual P-40. So uh, he went out to his plane one day, and... Uh, with chalk, made the, the markings uh, to draw the teeth and the lips and stuff. And he made a shark's mouth uh, on his, painted it uh, the way he thought it should be. And then he went over to Chenault's office one uh, that same day, I guess, and said, Colonel, how about coming out and taking a look at my airplane? Chenault went out and took a look at it. He said, say, that looks pretty good. He said, let's do them all that way. So we did. Now, I've had a lot of people say, well, is that because you thought the Japanese were so scared of sharks that, uh, you know, this would terrify them when they saw that? And uh, we had no thought of that. And it wasn't even uh, original. Uh, we copied it from a British airplane that was marked that way, but we did all of ours that way. Okay, that takes care of the shark's mouth. Uh, Flying Tigers, the name Flying Tigers was uh, something that we didn't coin. Uh, it came about uh, after the first two or three raids up in China. And they got into it at the same time we did in Rangoon. As a matter of fact, the first raid in, in Kunming, China, was, uh, I think, on the 20th of uh, December, and, uh, as opposed to our first raid in, in Rangoon on the 23rd. But uh, after the first two or three fights that they had up there, and they, they did so well and didn't lose any pilots, and they uh, shot down a bunch of Japanese planes, and uh, the Chinese started calling us uh, the Flying Tigers. And they have a particular name that I can't pronounce in Chinese, of course, that says it means flying tiger. And in, in some of their newspaper accounts, uh, and I guess radio accounts and stuff, they started calling the American volunteer group pilots flying tigers. And uh, then, of course, our own uh, press picked it up, uh, and, and it went from there. But it, that was strictly... The, the, the idea was the Chinese to call it. The air war on the other side of the globe, in the skies over Europe, bore little resemblance to what R.T. Smith and the Flying Tigers were dealing with. 
But one thing was the same no matter what theater of operations a pilot was flying in. Victory was about skilled airmen pushing themselves and their aircraft to the absolute limit. Al Freiberger piloted the B-26 Marauder. He logged quite a few missions in the twin-engine medium bomber built by the Martin Aircraft Company, including a mission on D-Day. Well, my name is Alfred Freiberger. I was with the 344th Bomb Group, uh, better known as the Silver Streaks. And I was with the 495th Bomb Squadron. I graduated from flying school in December of 1942 and went right down to McDill Field to check out in B-26s. That's where I received my training uh, to begin with, B-26s at McDill Field, then moved over to Lakeland. And that's where the 344th Bomb Group uh, was formed. The Martin B-26 was originally built. They didn't have any prototype at all. It was just uh, built from the blueprints, and uh, it was supposed to be a medium, uh, low-level uh, bombardment-type aircraft. And it was, uh, they tried it out as torpedo bombing and skit bombing and uh, for low level, uh, but it proved out a lot better to be a medium bombardment, which is up at uh, 12, 13, 14,000 feet. The B-26 was uh, first built uh, back in 1941, and it uh, was a, an airplane that had quite a few flaws with it to, to begin with, the bugs, because there, again, there was no prototype. It wasn't tested properly, or they didn't have time to test it. And uh, Harry Truman at the time was ready to scrap the program of the B-26. It was a complicated airplane to fly to begin with, but, uh, and we lost quite a few crews, particularly down at McDill Field, where we where I had my training. There was a, uh, an old saying, a ship a day in Tampa Bay, and this was pretty true. During a two-week period, we lost 14 airplanes into Tampa Bay. Uh, not all the crews were lost. A lot of them got out, of course, after they, they ditched. But the reason for it was uh, usually a runaway prop, as we call it. Uh, it uh, the electrical system in the B-26, uh, the first straight-A models, left quite a bit to be desired. They changed the electrical system which took care of the electrical prop running away. It had a Curtis electric prop on it, which uh, it required quite a bit of current to, to control the prop. As I say, when they changed the electrical system on the, the airplane, why well, it uh, proved out a lot, a lot better. Freiberger and his fellow Silver Streaks continued training for deployment to Europe at Lakeland Army Airfield in Florida. We uh, flew simulated combat missions and dropping bombs, formation flying, and uh, we spent several days on TDY, temporary duty. We went to Tyler, Texas, and we were in support of Camp Fannin with the Army, the uh, infantry. And we uh, came back to, to Lakeland and completed all of our training that was necessary to go overseas. and. We finished that up in December of 1943. Freiberger soon shipped out to England for more training, with an eye towards the upcoming invasion of Europe, Operation Overlord, D-Day. Well, as far as flying any practice missions, we didn't, we had 
several missions before we flew our first combat mission, just uh, as far as formation flying, joining up with formation, and of course not carrying any bombs or any ammunition, but just to uh, simulate a, a bomb run and uh, just to get used to the, the area and the terrain over there for one thing. And the first mission uh, that I flew was uh, March the 6th, 1944, and that uh, was kind of like a milk run. We uh, didn't receive too much uh, enemy opposition flak or didn't have too much of a problem on that one. We thought, well, there's nothing to this combat flying, but then the next day was something entirely different. That's when we started getting into the meat of things and, and being shot at for real. Well, on May the 26th, 1944, and that was about 10 days before D-Day, we were on a mission that uh, we got pretty well shot up. Matter of fact, there were only four holes in the airplane, but every one of them were, were vital. Uh, there was one burst of flak that knocked out my left engine, and a 88 millimeter that went through my right wing tank without exploding. If it had exploded, I wouldn't be here now. Uh, went through the wing tank. There was another burst of flak that uh, knocked out all my hydraulic system, and it was right under my seat. And uh, my armor-plated seat, of course, there again saved me. I've got a couple pieces of flak that I dug out of the armor-plated seat, and another burst of flak that uh, injured my tail gunner. And uh, of course, by losing one engine, why we we couldn't stay up with the rest of the formation, so we dropped out of formation and uh, came back by ourselves. And uh, that's where I had to call for my little friends to. Uh, helped me out, the two P-51s that uh, came in and shot down a ME-109 that was getting ready to make a pass at me. And uh, they came back and joined in my wing and they were doing swell rolls, victory rolls, and they escorted me back over the channel and they said, do you think you can make it back home okay from here? And I said, sure, thanks a lot. Never did find out who those fellows were. It, it, uh, they had a yellow and black checkered tail on their P-51s, and I, I never did uh, find out who they were. But we came back, uh, of course, getting down while we beat our, the rest of the formation back to our home base. And I called in for landing instruction and told them I had injured on board and was coming in on one engine. And they told me that they didn't want me to mess up the runway at Stansted to take my, uh, make my landing over at Great Dunmo, which is uh, another B-26 field close by, and uh, so I broke off my approach into Stansted and went over to Dunmo and called in for landing instructions, and they told me to pick any runway I wanted and come on in. And I, because of the hydraulic system being shot out, I, uh, my main gear, to try and drop the main gear, the landing gear would come down and lock, but the nose wheel wouldn't go down and lock. So knowing this, we had all the rest of the, the crew members in the, the back to support uh, Bob Dollum, who was my uh, tail gunner who was injured, to get back there with him, but also to have the weight uh, in the tail of the aircraft to help hold the nose off the ground as long as possible. When we landed, uh, of course the main gear touched down, but the nose gear wouldn't come down. 
And just before the nose started to fall through, I kicked the aircraft off to the side of the runway into the dirt area so that when the nose came down, I wouldn't be uh, sliding on the concrete runway. And as the nose went down, it dug in, and we just about flipped over on our back. So uh, it did settle back down on the, the main gear, but the nose was uh, stuck in the ground. And the aircraft was in such a, a position that normally the waist windows are waist high, and you can get into the aircraft from the ground through the waist windows. And because of the situation we were in, the nose was in the ground and the tail was sticking up in the air. They had to drive the ambulance underneath the waste windows and stand up on top of the ambulance to reach in to get Bob Dahlum out of the, the aircraft just to show you the angle that was the aircraft was setting. Of course, as soon as we uh, touched down, my, uh, the co-pilot and I opened up the, the cockpit overhead uh, windows and, and jumped out and started running away from it. And, got away from the airplane not knowing what was going to happen. And we uh, well, got about 50, 60 feet away from the airplane and just stopped. My knees just gave out and I just sat down on the ground there and couldn't even move then after it was all over with. But uh, at the time, why, uh, there again, you do what, what has to be done. But uh, it, it's something else you don't plan on and you don't have time to really think about it. You, you do what is necessary and what's required. If anybody says they're not scared when they go into combat, uh, they're not telling the truth, that's for sure. It's like going into a, a football game. You're for the football game while you're, you're nervous, and, and, but once you get uh, into the game and you're, you're flying the combat mission and flying in formation, you really don't have too much time to be scared or frightened, but uh, you're concerned more about staying in formation and flying the, the airplane, flying the mission as briefed. And after the mission's over with, why, it's just a matter of, well, I'm glad that's over with and uh, kind of relax. It was better to be busy uh, instead of uh, being able to sit around and thinking about uh, what has happened, what could happen, what might happen. What type of uh, targets were you mainly going for before D-Day? I think most of our missions were in uh, France and in Holland. We, I didn't get into uh, any missions into Germany while I was in England. And most of our missions were in France, as I say, and they were a nature of uh, railroad tracks, railroad bridges, uh, aerodromes to uh, blow up their, their runways and main artery intersections. So uh, we pretty well saturated, uh, we thought anyway that we'd saturated most of, of France, but it turned out there was still a lot to be <laughs> accomplished after we, uh, after D-Day started. Freiburger's B-26 crew knew the Normandy invasion was imminent, but the exact date remained a closely guarded secret. We really didn't have any idea that, or at least I didn't have any idea that uh, the D-Day was so close at hand. Of course, uh, we knew that something was bound to give pretty soon, that the invasion was going to start, but it's one of those things, well, that's going to be in the future sometime. 
but it came along pretty fast. Uh, on June the 5th, I came back from a mission, I flew a mission on June the 5th and came back uh, in the afternoon and uh, they told us all to, we better uh, get to bed early and because we're going to have an early get up. And uh, sure enough, at about uh, 3 o'clock in the morning, why, you know, the CQ came around to wake us up and thought, well, it's just another mission, not knowing it was going to be the invasion. After the usual uh, breakfast, I went to the briefing, and the briefing didn't seem to be anything different, except that they did mention that uh, our airplanes are going to be painted with black and white stripes. And they did mention that uh, any aircraft that tries to join our formation that didn't have those black and white stripes on their aircraft to shoot them down. Don't ask any questions, just shoot them down. And this was because we had in the past uh, had airplanes, not in our group, but in uh, the B-17s and other B-26 outfits that uh, Germans had received our airplanes. They had captured uh, fully flyable B-17s and B-26s, and they would use them to join a formation, tail end Charlie, and pull up into formation and then uh, shoot down the last couple of airplanes and then peel off and, and leave. And so this was our indication if anybody came up and they didn't have the black and white stripes, shoot them down. Don't ask any questions because there wouldn't be any Allied aircraft flying without the black and white stripes, so, so we uh, didn't see any that day. But uh, anyway, they briefed us on the black and white stripes, and uh, sure enough, we got out the airplane after the briefing, and uh, there they were. And that was all painted uh, after the hour of darkness uh, on June the, the 5th, and it was uh, a very hurry-up job and every able-bodied man uh, I think was put to work to, to paint the black and white stripes, anyone that was not on the mission for the next morning. And of course our mission the next morning we had everybody alerted, all the combat crews were ready and we had a, an all-out effort on that day of course. And we had uh, 56 ships that went up that morning. Well normally it, it's uh, 54 ships and then there's two uh, spares and that makes up the 56 ships. And uh, that is a, an all-out effort when you have the, the 56 ships, and that was another thing that uh, this must be something really important, have the black and white stripes and uh, have the 56 ship formation. We took off uh, in the morning. We got airborne about oh, four, a little after four. And our mission was, of course, to hit the, the beachhead, or Normandy Beach. And uh, we had to do it in visual contact with the ground. Well, the weather was still bad. It was rainy and drizzly when we got on the aircraft uh, that morning. And when it took off, visibility was still pretty bad. And going across uh, to the, over the channel, we had to stay below the cloud level. And I was down about uh, 4,000 feet uh, in my position going across the channel. And yes, it, to see those ships, uh, it was just really something to see. It was a sight that, uh, to behold, to see all those uh, battleships and cruisers and 
uh, landing barges. Uh, they were so close together, they could just you could walk from one to the other. They were that close. And it was very impressive, yes. Our group led the first uh, invasion mission. Uh, we were the leaders going over the beach that day, and our uh, target time was at 6.10, and we dropped our bombs at 6.10 in the morning. And uh, the Silver Streaks, uh, our group, uh, led the mission that day. We were not briefed as far as the name of the beach, per se. We just had a target that we were supposed to be hitting. And it was in uh, very close support with the landing barges and the uh, troops that are coming ashore from the landing crafts. As a matter of fact, I was still over the water when I, when I released my bombs, just over the shoreline. And uh, we were the ships ahead of us, the aircraft ahead of us, dropping their bombs. When, my, when I arrived over the, the shoreline, why, at that time there were a lot of uh, debris coming up from uh, the bombs from, uh, that were ahead of us. And uh, I think I saw everything from the kitchen sink right on down go through the formation there that coming up at us. It was uh, surprisingly, though, I'd had uh, very few holes damaged to my aircraft. We left the area, and of course, as soon as we dropped our bombs, we made an immediate right turn to get away, get out of the way of other aircraft coming in behind us, and uh, went back to, I was stationed at Bishop Storford at Stansted. Right now, Stansted is one of the uh, three major airports in London, the London area. And I was briefed to stand by for another mission as soon as I got back. We got back about 8 o'clock in the morning, and I flew another mission in the afternoon in the same general area, only it was Amiens, which is a, a town uh, further inland from the coast. And did it present any problems for you, having to fly at such a lower level when you made the beach, the first beach run? Well, normally our bombing runs were made at medium altitude, which is around 12,000, 13,000 feet. And of course, coming in at uh, 6,000 feet, 4,000 feet, why well, it, it was uh, really made an impression on you because, uh, as I say, the, the bombers ahead of you were dropping their bombs and they were going off about the time you were uh, coming over that area and it was causing quite a bit of uh, shock wave and also the debris coming up into the formation that you were in. So it, it was, uh, wasn't too comfortable. It seemed like the Germans were well aware of this uh, because they did throw up quite a bit of uh, flak. Matter of fact, they, even the soldiers on the ground, you could see them arming or aiming their, their rifle at you. And I think that they, uh, they weren't really prepared for us, but I think they had an idea that uh, something was happening about this time. It, uh, it wasn't a... Uh, a complete surprise, I don't believe. And did that, uh, did seeing all the uh, the landing craft and, and all of that, did that give you kind of an extra sense of pride or purpose in, in you know, directly supporting their landing and, and hitting those very close beach targets? Uh, yes, seeing the, the landing barges with the infantry on the barges that were going ashore, they were being 
Uh, they were well, maybe a half mile offshore by the time we were dropping our bombs right on the shore area. So it, uh, the precision bombing is what we had to do, and that's why we had to maintain visual contact to make sure we didn't uh, drop bombs on our own troops. And uh, yes, it, it gave you quite a, a thrill to, to see what was going on. It was uh, very, very interesting to, to see something like that, to, to know that I had a, a hand in it and I had a part in it. Something to be proud of. On D-Day, I didn't see any uh, German aircraft at all. As soon as we turned off, after we dropped our bombs and going back toward England, we could we were flying back then, and we could see the oncoming aircraft that were behind us. And it was just as far as your eye could see. Uh, airplanes, formations and formations coming in behind us, dropping in the same area. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Later that day, Freiburger's unit returned for a second bombing run into France. Well, the second mission I flew on D-Day on June the 6th it was supposed to be kind of a, a milk run. But I uh, came back with about 20 holes in my aircraft that day. And it was a a marshalling yard in uh, Amiens, France, which, as I say, inland from the uh, coast. And there were, I think the targets we had that day at the marshalling yards were a lot of freight cars uh, loaded down with supplies that were going to uh, the Cherbourg Peninsula area. And, of course, we that was our mission to, to make sure that they didn't make it. And aircraft crews were uh, well alerted and they were waiting for us, it seemed like, when we came in because they uh, really uh, had us pinned down with a barrage of flak. As I say, I picked up about 20 holes in my airplane that, and the morning mission, I only had uh, oh, four or five holes from damaged. So the B-26 is a pretty uh, hardy aircraft. Well, the B-26, uh, after it, uh, you got through the training and it uh, got into combat, it was one of the best combat airplanes in the inventory at the time. It had uh, one-tenth of one percent fatality, and that is a record for any other uh, aircraft that was flying in combat at the time. It was a rugged airplane, very rugged. It was uh, one of our fastest airplanes, uh, bombers, in, in the inventory at the time. It uh, had two uh, Pratt & Whitney R2800 engines, which are fantastic engines. I came back from a mission, shot up pretty badly, uh, and I lost my left engine. Uh, at the time, uh, the engine was still trying to put out. You could see the cylinders working but uh, it was just the casing around it that had exploded, so we had to shut the engine down. Of course, it wasn't putting out any, any power. 
and we came back on one engine. It uh, was a rugged airplane. It sure was. And as far as the firepower, I think the, the Luftwaffe, uh, the German fighters uh, were, they steered clear of us. They were afraid of the airplane. We had uh, quite a bit of firepower and speed that uh, they didn't want to mess with. The B-26 squadrons continued to support the invasion forces as they pushed ahead. Well, we're very, very proud of the fact that we had something to do with the initial attack on the beach and then to, to push those Germans back uh, further inland. And that was the, the beginning. So we were flying close support with the, uh, the infantry as they were moving forward uh, from hedgerow to hedgerow, and we were uh, briefed on these at our briefing and to make sure that we didn't drop bombs uh, before a certain area because that's where our troops were and they were still moving fast, uh, advancing fast, and that we uh, were to steer clear of certain areas uh, to make sure we didn't bomb our own troops. Of course, when you're flying formation, you're really not looking down on the ground too much. You're, you're keeping your position in the formation, looking at the the lead ship that you're, you're flying on, and uh, you're a wingman, or if you happen to be a deputy lead, while well, you've got wingmen that are worried about you and, and what your position is, and so you're really not too interested in, in looking down on the ground and, and on a sightseeing trip, uh, not as at one of the pilots. The other crew members, the tail gunner and uh, waist gunners, they, of course, had a, a lot better, better view of what was the terrain we were flying over. And uh, they were the ones that could give you a good rundown of what they saw. But uh, as far as the, the pilots up in the cockpit, it, uh, we didn't pay too much attention about what was going down on the ground. We were, had to stay in formation and maintain our position. We interviewed Alfred Freiberger during the 50th anniversary of the Normandy invasion. And of course, he still held powerful memories of that day. Well, the most important thing that uh, I think would stand out in my mind about D-Day, 50 years after the invasion, uh, I have not been over there in that area uh, to see the, the beach and see Normandy, the Cherbourg Peninsula, uh, but uh, I understand it has, uh, there are very few scars left of the uh, invasion. And of course, they are having museums set up over there and uh, to keep the, the memory of that particular incident in everybody's mind. But I think the, the main thing is that uh, people have gone on with their life, and it, it's, uh, it's something that has passed. But we don't want to forget it. it it's something that uh, we all want to remember. And, I think all of us that were involved with it were very proud of the fact that we were involved with the D-Day invasion and helped support the cause. I uh, put in 24 years with the Air Force. I stayed in and I retired from the Air Force in 1965 and went right to work for uh, Douglas Aircraft Company and uh, flew with Douglas for another 22 years. So I've been flying for most of my life. 
Although he saw the war from his cockpit flying a few thousand feet and at times a few hundred feet above the terrain, Al Freiberger had the utmost respect for the infantry troops struggling down below. As far as uh, being in the infantry, I'm, I'm glad that I was in the Air Force. Uh, uh, sweeping in uh, foxholes and uh, water-filled trenches and uh, eating cold meals, and it, it just doesn't appeal to me. And I, I have all the respect in the world for the the, the doughboy, the infantryman that uh, had to put up with all that. Uh, we were very, very fortunate in that we had a place to sweep uh, a soft, clean bed uh, at night. And uh, so I, I've got all the respect in the world, I say, for the infantryman and the, the combat crew uh, on the ground. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.